Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to Oral Delights number 57 on the brink of this year, 2009. Everybody, welcome. So how is everyone? Yes, we are the brink of 2009 and Oral Delights comes to you flying her flag high. I hope everyone is going to have a nice or has had a nice new year and rounded off the 2008 with fine drinking merry and be happy. I hope you all have. So what have we got on the show today? Well, start of a new year, I thought we'd do something rather special and Start up a serial. Yes, we have none other than David Brin with a fantastic three-part story. We also have a poem by Mark Rich. Fact news by Jim Campanella. Main fiction comes from none other than Jeff Ryman. And it's actually in cooperation with Tor.com. So look out for that one. Sean Cure delivers another beardy book review. And like I say, we have the three-part serial of a story called Temptation by David Brin. And if that wasn't enough, we have the first part of Yeti Devers little inside, in-depth look at how to put an anthology together. So stick around for that. So, can't get better than that. I hope everyone will join me in this new year and ride the crest of wave with Starship Sofa and Oral Delights. So kicking off with a little bit of poetry. 50 Cents by Mark Rich For a mere 50 cents, you may buy all the words you want. The pressurized word machine appeared at the station adjoining the grocers yesterday. To help us keep your heads inflated, the clerk says. You watch folks come and go, pressurizing their brains for the day, and taking on knowing looks. Some days, a knowing look suits you, for sometimes you think you do know a thing or two about the townspeople around you, who you are, and so forth. Other days, unconfident, drifting along streets, you yearn to put words to what you see. Hard times for writers, these. Others speak glibly when you cannot afford to. First appeared in Kaleidotrope, October 2007. There you go, Mark. Thank you so much. And Diane, thank you again. Do pop over to Diane's site and pop over to Mark's site. Link's on the front of the site. So, a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned that we were going to get a little in-depth look into the world of putting an anthology together. And none other than... 
in the zone, ex-editor Yeti Devere has kindly stepped up to the mark and said, let's follow Yeti through this turbulent industry. And we'll just see how it goes. You know what I mean? Yeti said he'd be able to get one of these done once a month. It'll be really nice. Just to kind of, you know, see how how it, it goes. See what happens, how he gets the stories together, how he puts it all together. So I'm going to hand you straight over to Yeti. So, thinking my accent is bad. <laughs> hey, over Yeti. <laughs> Have a listen to Yeti and see what he says. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, this is Blinded by the Light, an audio series about editing a science fiction anthology and an anthology of optimistic near future SF called Shine at Dead. Tony Smith, Starship Sofa Commander Supreme, sweet talked me into it, mentioning a certain risky business where certain people started making and marketing their own beer, their pitfalls, their ups and downs, the lot. Now Tony's fridge is stocked to the hilt with real beer. So one of the things I hope to accomplish with this series is that at the end Tony's fridge will be stocked to the hilt with real anthologies. Anyway, I hope you can hear through my thick Dutch accent, which is somewhat worsened by the nasality caused by a retreating flu. The beginning. As with many things, there is not really a clear one. I have been interested in SF all my life and also hold a generally positive outlook. One of the first inspirations for this came from Thor editor Patrick Nielsen Hagen. He was going to do an anthology called Up, of SF stories where things change for the better. I thought it was a great idea. This was back in 2002, September 2002 actually. I thought it was a great idea, so I made a bold move and emailed him. He was very courteous, especially to a virtual unknown like me and allowed me to send a story for consideration. Normally, such anthologies are by invitation only. Then, I heard nothing for about two years, queried, resent a story, and heard nothing again for another couple of years. So eventually, I decided that this anthology was either put on ice or dead. So I started sending the story in question to other markets. Transcendence Express, eventually sold to Hot Magazine, I was the lead story in hub number two, the last printed version, with a great Vincent Chong illustration, of which I now have a signed print. Lee Harris reprinted it in hub online, issue number 44, and Steve Eli featured it in audio form on Escape Pod, as issue number 122, where it was downloaded well over 20,000 times, and received tons of feedback, both positive and negative. This goes with the, with the territory. Being published means being open to a lot of scrutiny. It's also been requested for two reprint anthologies, which I hope to announce when these come out, making it my most successful and popular short story so far. It makes me think that there might be quite an audience out there for optimistic, forward-looking science fiction. At the time, I was already part of the Interzone editorial team, from March 2004, actually. A long story that is not on topic here. And was pushing Andy Cox to do a Sense of Wonder special issue. This took quite some time and trouble, as every story in Interzone is illustrated, and getting artwork in time is a difficult proposition at times. Eventually, we did get this Sense of Wonder special issue together, 
Uh, it was number 208. Uh, appeared in November, December 2006. But it took a lot of trouble. Hence, I was somewhat reluctant to be pushing for an optimistic SF special issue. And once again, put the idea to the back burner. As co-editing Interzone was taking up almost all of my free time. Still, there was the old internet discussion on optimistic or positive science fiction, or the lack thereof, and the topic came to the fore at Orbital, the 2008 Eastercom. There, I was approached by both Paul Raven, of Futurismic and Velcro City Tourist Board fame, and Martin Begraaf, who is the editor of, of the BSFA's Focus magazine and a short story writer of his own. Uh, of his own. While both of these people do sometimes work together in their all-to-out imprint, they did, probably unbeknownst to each other due to the huge amount of beer that makes the rounds at Eastercom, each approached me separately with a question if I was interested in editing an anthology of optimistic SF stories, for, indeed, their all-to-out imprint. While I was both chuffed and honored to be asked, I turned them down. Thing was, if I was going to do this crazy thing, I wanted this antho, this anthology to have A, good distribution, so that it couldn't be found by as many people as possible, and B, pay professional rates, so that it would attract top quality stories. While immensely well intended, all too out aren't, let's hope, yet, the outfit for this. Thankfully, Paul and Martin understood this and gracefully accepted my explanation. However, it did bring the idea fully to the fore. So I really started to query in earnest at the Worldcon in Denver, the same year in 2008. I was turned down, but in a friendly and encouraging way. One of the commissioning editors I queried was Lou Anders of Pyresef. Lou has been a very good friend's friend since the 2005 Worldcon in Glasgow. Actually, the way we met was uh, very uh, typical. Um, at that time, I represented Interzone uh, at Interaction and had high hopes that Interzone might have won the semi-prozine Hugo, but didn't. And at the Hugo Losers Party, I was somewhat dejected. And Gordon van Gelder introduced me to uh, Lou Anders and... We sat down and we talked, and this talk was so nice that I forgot where I was, and that I totally forgot that we had just lost. Lou and I have been very good friends ever since. Anyway, I was, uh, together with people like Kay Kenyon and Paolo Bacchialupi, helping Lou out with setting up the Pyre Party. In a quiet moment, which are very rare at Worldcons, I tactfully asked him if he would be interested Lou turned me down as gently as he could. Above all, he's an immaculate gentleman, but also recommended that I try out the Solaris guys. So I did. However, this didn't quite go as smooth as I hoped. These things rarely do. I ran into George Mann and Mark Newton in the Hyatt bar on a relatively quiet moment, gathered all my Dutch courage, and pissed the anthology at them. It was well received, but also followed by the remark that I really should ask Christian Dan, since he is the acquisitions editor. And Christian, at the time, was having a meeting somewhere else in the invention. Oh, well. Nevertheless, as chance, a rather good chance at that, had it, 
I ran into the complete salaris at the invention team again, proposed the anthology to Christian Dunn, got a very good reaction. He gave me his card and asked me to come back on this after we both returned home from the invention. This we did, and as we emailed over it, eventually Solaris decided to take it up. So Shine, the, the, the title I decided to give the anthology, is now a go, and slated for a late 2009 or early 2010 release. Much must happen before that, and the following episodes in this audio series will report on that. But the all-important all first step was done, get the anthology accepted by a publisher with a good distribution network. Finally, some of you may wonder how I pitched the idea. As it is, I only have a somewhat vague recollection of that. I do not have a standard pitch, neither have I made a shortened synopsis on it. Since I've been thinking of optimistic near future SF on and off over a long period of time, and since it is a subject close to my heart, I don't need a reminder or a condensed version. Once I start talking about it, the words flow almost on their own volition, the pitch is from the heart, and true. So, I hope this has helped sell the anthology. Okay, um, this is it for part one. <laughs> I hope to get back to you with all the ups and downs, the pitfalls of editing your own anthology uh, in the coming months, if Tony will have me. There you go. Thank you, Yetzi. Thank you so much for that. Don't forget, follow Yetzi and this workings of getting this anthology put together. And, you know, when it gets to the end, we will no doubt have some books to give out as competition prizes. There you go. So we have no flash fiction today, but what I am going to do is play the main fiction, or one of the main fiction titles, straight away, Mr. Jeff Ryman's Filmmakers of Mars. Now this was placed on the Tor site, Tor.com, and over there they have some cracking stories. And I just thought, you know, I'd drop them a little email and say, is there a chance, you know, maybe Starship Sofa can put out this story as well? And yes, came back fine, great people over at Tor.com. So I'm going to give you a little heads up on Tor. Tor Books is actually one of two imprints from Tom Doherty Associates, which were based in New York City. Tor has won, get this, the Locust Magazine poll for best science fiction publisher every year since 1988. And I like their little kind of, if you go over that, me and Grant were talking about this new Tor.com website. Science fiction, fantasy, the universe, and related subjects. And it is, it, it is like a kind of little hub, what they've got going over there. They've got some great stories over there, but they've also got like artwork as well. A little bit like what I'm going to try and do there. You know, stand on the back of giants, why don't I? But it is like, you know, there's, there's loads of kind of reviews going on there. There's loads of things happening at this tour.com. So please pop over there. And one of the things that was happening there was, Jeff Ryman has a story. So I asked, you know, I kindly asked Tor, and they, yes, that's no problem. So I'm going to give you a little heads up on Mr. Jeff Ryman. And guess what? It is Mr. Ryman that narrates the story as well. And my good friend, Mr. Grant Stone, recommends this story should be up for nomination for a Hugo Award. So we will wait and see. He says it is fantastic. And I must have to agree with him. What a great story this is. So Jeffrey Charles Ryman, born 1951, is a writer of science fiction, fantasy, and surrealist 
Slipstream fiction. Ryman was born in Canada, moved to the United States at the age of 11. He earned degrees in history and English at UCLA, then moved to good old Blighty, where he's lived for most of his life. He was guest of honour at NovaCon 1989 and has twice been guest speaker at MicroCon in 94 and 2004. Mr. Ryman currently lectures at Creative Writing for the University of Manchester in England Department. His most recent full-length novel is The King's Last Song, set in Cambodia. Works today that Mr. Ryman has out is The Warrior Who Carried Life, 1985. The Unconquered Country, it's a novella in 1986. Child Garden, 1989. Was, 1992. 253, or better known as Tube Theatre, first published as actually a hypertext on a website. Lust, 2001, Air, 2005, Pol Pot's Beautiful Daughter, 2006, and The King's Last Song, 2006. Mr. Ryman has had umpteen awards. British Science Fiction Award for The Unconquered Country, 1986, and Air. World Fantasy Award went to The Unconquered Country. Arthur C. Clarke Award, The Child Garden, and Air. Campbell Award for Child Garden, Philip K. Dick Award for 253, James Triptree Award for Air. Very honoured gentleman. So without further ado, the Starship Sofa and Tor.com is very proud to present. The Filmmakers of Mars by Jeff Ryman. The films just started showing up everywhere. Old, forgotten, silent movies turning to jelly in warehouses all over Southern California. Anaheim, Burbank, Tarzana. I got a call from Al at Hannibal Restoration. They're mind-blowing. <laughs> the old hippie. Eight reels of a film about Santa Claus from 1909, filmed in Lapland, and 40 reels of a film it says was produced by Edgar Rice Burroughs in 1911, Cinefax sponsored a program at the L.A. Film Festival. They invited me, of course. Annabel invited me, too. I gave a second invitation to my friend Amy. I don't know what I was expecting. Frank L. Baum went bus-producing Oz movies. They're terrible and have very silly special effects, but you couldn't film them now, or even fake them. They just look like they're from their era, or maybe even from Oz itself, if Oz were poverty-stricken. We all sat down. Al's partner, Tony, came on and mumbled something through his beard about Providence and how grateful he was to the sponsors. And then Hannibal screened the first film about Santa Claus. For all his work, Al had only one reel of film to show, but Hannibal had done a beautiful job. They remade each frame of film filling in the scratches, covering up dirt, um, enhancing contrast, sharp, clear, monochrome images. It was like going back in time to see the premiere. They had Santa Claus, bronco-busting reindeer. Santa was pretty damn robust, a tall, rangy guy in a fur-trimmed suit. The reindeer were not studio dummies, but huge, rangy, antlered beasts. Santa wrestled them to the ground, pulled reins over their heads, and 
broke the men bareback like it was a rodeo. Think Santa Claus Western. Snowdrifts between evergreen trees. Santa chewed tobacco and spat and hitched up his new team behind a sleigh pulled by even more reindeer. The next shot, he's pulling the team up in front of Santa's palace, and the only thing it could possibly be is a real multi-story building made entirely from blocks of ice. So far, I was saying to myself, okay, they went to Lapland and filmed it almost like a documentary. Then he goes inside, and it's, it's not a painted set. The ice blocks glow like candlelight. Santa finds that the elves have been eating the toys. Remember the first time you saw Nosferatu and the vampire looked like a crossbreed between a human and a rat? Well, Santa's elves looked like little Nosferatus, only they were three feet high and deranged. One of them was licking a child's doll between her legs. You could hear the whole audience go, "You." Rat teeth stuck out, their fingernails curled in lumps like fungus. One of them snarled at Santa, and the old guy cuffed it pretty smartly about its pointed ears, then knocked it to the ground and gave it two smart kicks to the groin. And the reel ended. Amy looked at me, her face seesawing between wonder and disgust. That was a children's film? The festival director bounced up to a lectern, trying to look spry. He joked about the movie. It was called The Secret Life of Santa Claus, and I think it must be the first X-rated Santa feature. He introduced a representative of the Burroughs family, and a fresh-faced college student hopped up onto the stage. He was, the director said, Edgar Rice Burroughs' great-grand-nephew. He... He could only have been twenty years old. Sun-streaked hair, baggy trousers that sagged just sufficiently below his underwear line to be cool. Calvin Klein's, by the way. He had that Californian polish of sun, wealth, opportunity, honed parenting. Appropriate. I knew that everything this guy did would be appropriate. His name was the perfectly appropriate John Doe Burroughs, and he made a perfect and predictable speech about how much he admired his famous forebearer and how the film had been found inside a family safe. It really had been shut for 90 years. It was recorded in the ERB estate inventory with a request not to open it, so we didn't. Then, strangely, the safe just opened itself. Oh, yeah? Sure. And inside, there were 40 reels of film. In other words, about three hours' worth. <laughs> in 1911? Uh, that would make it an epic on the scale of intolerance. Only intolerance was made in 1960. And my friend Al came back up on stage. Soft-spoken, sincere, a fan of old radio shows a native Angelino who remembers the Brown Derby restaurant. I'll have been my mentor for a while. Where do nice guys finish?
He talked for 30 minutes about the restoration. I know restoring old films is an art, but it's an art that's best when it shuts its mouth. It's like all those DVD extras about costume design. Al gave us film history. The producer was Burroughs himself, and the director was called Nemo, our treaties. Unknown, and, and, and yeah, yeah, probably a pseudonym. The actor, however, was known. He was Herman Blix, who starred in one Tarzan film in 1927 and then married Edgar Rice Burroughs' daughter. So what was he doing in 1911? More questions and answers, but the biggest mystery is the technical achievement of the film itself. Oh, sweet. How? Oh. Smile with, I don't know, pleasure. From the three hours of film, so far he had about 20 minutes to show us. The lights went down. Up came the first frame. A black and white panel, hand-painted with about ten pieces of information on one screen, Title, Edison Company logo, and all that Art Nouveau lettering. Directed by Nemo Artrides from the histories by Edgar Rice Burroughs. Filmed by permission of the incomparable Jade Ishtor. No cast list. The first scene looks like what you'd see through a spyglass. There's a cotton gin, plants, black slaves... The spyglass opens out, and we see, on opposite sides of a cotton field, rows of troops. One side in grey, one in the dark uniform of the Union Army. So, I whispered to Amy, it is D.W. Griffiths. <laughs> and she chuckled and just went, shh. Herman Blix, in Confederate uniform, rides into shop. He manages to swagger while on horseback. Like old photographs of General Beaufort, he looks crazed, with huge whiskers and a mad stare and thick, dirty, plastered-down hair. From amid the rows of cotton, a slave stares up at him. That's when I first sat up. There was something in that face. You couldn't paint it on with makeup. You, you couldn't buy it from Hollywood. The slave looked as old as the Bible, starved and gnarled. His neck was thin in strands. His chin had no flesh on it, the skin around his eyes. His cheeks, even, even across his nose, was crisscrossed with lines of repeated stress, cut as deeply as whiplashes. His eyes swam with misery, Outrage, a lifetime of abuse. Oh. In the book, Burroughs bangs on about race. His history of Mars is a history of racial triumph and decline. Race explains culture. His hero is a warrior for slavery and an Indian fighter. The opening of the book swiftly combines all of America's racial catastrophes. Our supposed hero raises his sword and strikes the old black man down. I sat back in shock. <laughs> what the hell was that supposed to be? A, a racist assault and a, an apology for it? 
There was a gap, a break, I guess, where the film was unsalvageable. Somehow, we jumped to Mars. We see a huge thing with six legs and swivel eyes hauling Blix by a chain around his neck. The brain processes at high speed. Mine just said, no. This is never 1911. This is CGI now. The glassy frog eyes turn on stalks. The thing has six perfectly functioning limbs with hands for feet, a thark in the books. As I watched, it drops down onto its middle set of legs and starts walking on those as well. The motion is perfect. The design totally disorienting. The thing's scrawny and bloated at the same time it moves as tensely as an erect cobra. The ground, all the way to a near horizon, is carpeted with spongy fungus. Herman Blix doesn't walk across it. He he bounces blearily, like he's drunk on a trampoline. He's stark, bollock, naked, unswervingly naked. You can see he's circumcised, and even weirder for 1911 Hollywood, his pubes are shaved smooth. The audience rustled. The title panel said, No water on a Mars that suffers from climate change. Climate change? In the low Martian gravity, he does not know his own strength. Blix stumbles, fights to gain his balance, and springs up into the air, out all the way to the end of his chain, uh, like a guy in weightless simulation. The thark jerks him back, and he slams down onto the moss. He lands badly, rolls, nurses his knee. Distance shot. A caravan lumbers, sways, ripples with a myriad of limbs. It looks like one living thing, a giant centipede. I'd say a hundred extras at least. Back to close-up. A thark rides something that at first is difficult even to see. Shapeless and wrinkled, an eyeless, featureless, worm-like head splits open, its mouth lipless like a cut. It seethes forward on what look like thousands of grappling hooks. One of the dead cities of Mars, says the title. The city looks like a chain of deliberately dynamited municipal parking lots, only with statues in the corners and mosques attached. No, 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 it said aloud. This wasn't a matte painting held in front of the camera. This wasn't a miniature. The actors did not troop past some dim rear projection screen. No silvered, masked, stuffed lizard stood in for monsters like in the Thief of Baghdad. No well-designed, full-sized dragon moved their stiff little puppet jaws like in Siegfried. An accidentally good set of swivel eyes I could take. Maybe, like Babylon in Intolerance, they, they just built the Martian city for real. Maybe they found the young Willis O'Brien to animate the Tharks, but not all of it. All at once. This is a fake, I said deliberately loudly, 
No way is this 1911. People chuckled. But the thing was, the film didn't look like now either. First off, the star really was Herman Blake's. Herman Blake's was 27 in 1927, so he could only have been 11 in 1911. Okay, so they got the date of the film wrong. More like 1928, maybe, when he'd already married the boss's daughter, but Blex did not look 28, either. His hair was brushed back, which made him look craggier and older. Older and somehow mummified. Maybe it was all the dry desert air, but in close-ups, there were thousands of tiny wrinkles all over his face. The eyes looked fierce, almost evil. The mouth, a, a thin, downward-turning line, and, and the eyes. The old film made his eyes, probably blue, look like ice. You can imagine them glowing slightly as if sunlight shone into them. And the audience couldn't stop giggling at his willy. It, it, it was a, a very nice willy, even retracted, but it, it made the film feel like a Silent, slow-motion, flesh garden. Pre-haste code, Amy murmured. Another blip. Blix is now wearing a helmet. A hollowed-out head of a thark. There's bits hanging down and speckles of gore on his shoulders, but Blix just looks bemused. He starts forward in surprise. The silver screen fills with the image of a woman. Her head is lowered. Then suddenly she looks up, jumps in quick time, as if the film were speeded up. The audience giggled, but not like they do at Prince's Beloved and Intolerance. This was a nervous chuckle. Because one stony stare from that woman, and something around your heart stopped. The incomparable Jade Ishtor, said the titles. Think Garbo or Hepburn, but with no makeup. No 1920s bee-stung lips, no ornate metal swirls to cover the nipples. The cheekbones are too high, too large, and the eyes look like a plastic surgeon has pulled them back too far, all the way to the ears. The Princess of Mars! Her tongue flickers like she's tasting the air. She wears what looks like a cap of snow, white feathers. The camera pulls back, and she's naked too. But her pudenda have a fan of white feathers clamped over them. <laughs> Amy just laughed. She looks like a stripper. The princess sees Herman, and all the feathers on top of her head stand up the crest of a cockatoo. Jade Ishtor was no kind of actress. She bounced forward, a kind of bunny hop, and he could see her glance down on the floor. She was looking for her mark. The hero moves closer to her and bows, but she isn't looking at him. She's peering right into the camera, as if wondering who it is. Right. First, find your deformed Greta Garbo and make sure she can hop. Acting might well be down your list of priorities. 
And that's what I was thinking when, gathering herself up, Jade suddenly jumps, two-footed, like a giant robin, onto the top of a table. She reaches up for a hanging lamp, and under her arms is a web of skin, like she has residual wings. They're tufted with flightless feathers. Jade Ishtor holds up the lamp and points it at the human. The camera looks at his illuminated legs, his genitalia held in unflinching gaze. The hero's face moves to speak, and a title panel intervenes. I am a man, but not of this world. This is unbelievable, said Amy. I am Herman, Lord of the Tharks. At that point, the audience just loses it. They howl. The camera eyes up the princess's legs. Her knees double back in the wrong direction, and she has the thick thigh muscles of a swan. Her shins are as long and thin as a walking stick covered with scales. She has the feet of a whooping crane. It's different from the books, I said. She laid eggs, but she didn't have feathers. She had ordinary legs. She laid eggs? Yuck! Her name's different, too. All the names are different. Jade Ishtor looked at the land, the expression of an ostrich, and snaps forward. She's pecked at the lens. The film ended suddenly. Bang. There were forty reels of that. It would have cost millions, even at 1911 prices. In 1911, Edgar Rice Burroughs was still selling pencil sharpeners in Chicago, and the story was only just being serialized in magazines for the first time. In 1911, there was no film grammar for something that long. The birth of a nation had not yet been made. Na, 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 na. That was 1927 at the earliest. The applause was light, scattered. People were in shock. It, it had been too good. It had been too weird. I knew I had my story. That's a fake. I'm going to prove it. After the next screening, a particularly nauseating silent version of Jack the Ripper, I talked to Mr. Appropriate. God, was he ever. Fresh-faced, I would say, like Andy Hardy on smart drugs. He was indeed a distant relative of Burroughs, and he claimed with UCLA freshman directness to have gone to do the inventory himself, so I said how convenient it was for everybody that the safe had opened itself. I couldn't dent his wide-eyed innocence. That's the weirdest thing. It had a time lock, and it could only be opened from the inside. He made me feel old and mean and down and cynical, but I thought, gotcha, kid. I looked him up in the UCLA directories and found him guilelessly open to public inspection. It said he was studying dentistry. Come on, I thought. You're a film major. Like I'd been. So now I'm a journalist who only writes about film. I know how it goes. Nobody gives you a break, so you fake something to get some publicity. Maybe get your foot in the door. What's your story? You got a famous relative? Your what? Great-great-grand-uncle twice removed? Wow. Cash in. 
The family papers had indeed been kept in a showguard storage facility in Burbank. The guard at the entrance was huge, Samoan, and, well, guarded. He said hardly anything except that, yes, the safe had been stored with his company and other chattels from the ERB estate. I showed him my press pass, said I was doing a story on the film. How long had it been stored there? He said he didn't know, but gave me names to write to. I did and got a simple letter back. The Burroughs family inventory had moved there when the previous company up sticks from Hollywood in 1965. I got the name of that company and the old address. The building was now an office block. The story, as far as I could push it, checked out. My best-selling book, I, I mean, the, the book that sold the most copies, though it remained well below the borders threshold of perception, was called A History of Special Effects. If the film was a fake, I knew all the people who could have done the work. There are only about 40 companies in the entire world who could have animated the Tharks. I wrote to all of them and visited the five or six people who were personal friends. I, I told them what I'd seen. There had been at least two serious attempts to make an ERB Mars movie in the 80s. Had anyone done a particularly fine test reel? Twice, I thought I'd found it. Old Yolanda out of Pixar, a real pioneer, now doing backgrounds. She told me she'd been on board a John Carter Mars project. She still had some of the production design sketches. We had a nice dinner at her place. I saw the sketches. The princesses all wore clothes. The clothes showed off their lovely and entirely human legs. I visited Yong, a, a Thai animator who now worked for Lucas. I told him what I'd seen. I know, I heard, said Yong. He'd done some work on a Burroughs project in the 90s. Look, you know that only us and a couple of other companies are that good. And if it wasn't that good, somebody like you, ah, oh, you'd spot it straight away. He nodded and chuckled. It's gotta be a publicity stunt for a new movie. Well, whoever did it, they're hot. This stuff was the finest FX I'd ever seen. But the weird thing was the whole style, you know, of the titles. That was all perfect for a silent movie. <laughs> oh, I gotta see this. It sounds good. Really, really good. I went home. Took out some of my old scripts. Those would have made perfect little films. Only they didn't. One was about a mother whose son and his boyfriend both had AIDS. She gets over it by counseling the boyfriend's mother, an evangelical. Would have been a great two-hander for Streep and McLean. Way ahead of its time. I had the delight of seeing it starring Sally Ann Field, made for TV. <laughs> Somebody at the agency just ripped it off. Another was that Criss Cross Altman thing about race in L.A. Sound familiar? Uh, the script is just dust on a shelf now. One of my best isn't even dust. It was a new take on the Old South. Now it's just iron molecules on a scrambled hard drive. Always do your backups. That script is now as far away as Burroughs' Mars. At twelve, I was an ERB fan. I still have some of the old books, and I got one down from the shelf. It was the Ace Edition with the Frank Frazetta cover. 
I'd forgotten that Burroughs himself is a character in the book. He says he knew John Carter, a kind of uncle. His uncle disappeared just after the Civil War and returned. He stood outside in the dark, arms outstretched towards the stars, and insisted that he be buried in a crypt that could only be opened from the inside. Something else. John Carter never got older. He could not remember being a child, but he could remember serving kings and emperors, and that was why, somehow, he could waft in spirit to somewhere else, bar soon, which, even if it was some kind of Mars, did not have to be our Mars. I got a call from John Doe, appropriate. There's been some more films show up, he said. He sounded like someone had kicked him in the stomach. In the mail. It's in color. Even he knew they had no color in 1911. Can I say that I'm not surprised? He didn't reply. I'm coming over, I said. When he opened the door, he looked even worse than he sounded. He had a line of gray down the middle of his cheeks, and the flesh under his eyes was dark. When he spoke, it sounded like a slowed-down film. There's somebody here, he said, and left the door wide open behind him. Someone was sitting with his back to us, watching a video. On the screen, a cushioned landscape extended to a surprisingly close horizon. The ground was orange, the sky a deep bronze, and a silver zeppelin billowed across it, sails pumping like wings. The man looked back over his shoulder, and it was Herman Blix. Herman, as he looked in 1928, 1911, or 1863, except that he had to lean on a cane. He heaved himself out of the chair and lumbered forward as if he had the bulk of a wounded elephant. Did I say that he was stark naked? Not used to clothes, he said, gasping like he wasn't used to breathing. Paul linked. Your world turns over. I saw as he spoke he had tiny fangs and that his eyes did glow. Looking into them made me feel dizzy and I had to sit down. The strangest thing was that I knew at once what he was and accepted it. Like meeting those little Nosferatu elves. No wonder he could waft through space. He wouldn't need a life support system. Can't you make films? His eyes made it impossible to lie, and I heard myself say yes, because it was true. I could. The kid next to me bled. Expend. You're coming with me! Blix bore down on me, hauled me off the sofa, hugged me, and everything gasped, cold and dark. Mars was only the beginning.
There you go. Don't forget, as usual, all copyright is Mr. Jeff Ryman's and Tor.com. There you go. Some big guns out there, so don't go copy copying. Look out again for more work from Tor.com. We have some great big writers coming from that stable over there, so please do stick around for that. I think we need to speak to Mr. Sean Q on a bloody book review. Sean, sir, Happy New Year! Hello, and welcome to another Beardy Book Review, here on Starship Sofa. This time around, I'd like to talk about a book which I'm sure a lot of science fiction fans have been waiting for for quite a long time. It's The Last Theorem, by Arthur C. Clarke and Frederick Pohl. This was the very last book to be worked on by Sir Arthur, and I understand that he approved the final manuscript just days before he passed away earlier this year. He had been suffering from post-polio syndrome and had been confined to a wheelchair for some time, and over the past few years his health had deteriorated rapidly. He died in Sri Lanka, where he had lived since 1956. As usual, I'm not going to go into too many details here, as I don't want to spoil the story for anyone, but it can be summarised as follows. A young Sri Lankan mathematician, Ranjit Subramanian, while still at university, becomes obsessed with finding a simple and concise logical proof of Fermat's last theorem, using only mathematical knowledge and techniques that were available in the 17th century at the time that Fermat was alive. Ranjit, while at university, gets involved with someone whose father is, or is about to be, part of a secret United Nations committee that is planning to develop and use a large-scale non-lethal weapon to stop conflicts between neighbouring nations, and to ensure that rogue states can be rendered harmless. After a few adventures, which I won't go into here, Ranjit finds and publishes his mathematical proof, and then gets employed by a US government agency to help them with cryptographic techniques. At the same time, a space elevator, similar to that mentioned in the earlier Clark work, The Fountains of Paradise, is being constructed in Sri Lanka, to provide low-cost Earth-to-low-orbit transit of people and materials. And various international tensions and conflicts are growing around the world. Ranjit gets married. Meanwhile, across the galaxy, a race of what I can only call hyper-intelligent pan-dimensional beings, sound familiar? Bear with me, called the Grand Galactics, are basically running the galaxy controlling the growth and development of younger civilizations, and ensuring that if a civilization goes bad, which in their definition means developing weapons of mass destruction and looking as if they might start heading out into space, then that dangerous civilization is terminated to ensure peace in the galaxy. The Grand Galactics have a number of client races that work for them, acting as enforcers. Light and other radiation from early nuclear test detonations and the two atomic bombs dropped in World War II are detected and reported to the Grand Galactics. They then make a decision to sterilise the Earth to ensure future galactic safety and then go back to whatever they were doing before, such as nurturing fields of interstellar gas to make new star formation possible, and whatever else they have to do to run the galaxy. The Enforcer race do not have faster-than-light space travel, so it takes them many years to travel to Earth. During that period, the secret UN committee 
use their special weapon on North Korea and elsewhere. The space elevator is completed. The first Olympic Games on the moon is held, and Ranjit's daughter competes. Later still, a solar sailor race is held between the Earth and the moon, and it figures quite strongly in the part of the plot that deals with what happens when one group of the alien enforcers have arrived. Now then, where to begin with my analysis of this work? Hmm. I have to say, I was rather disappointed. I don't mean any disrespect to Frederick Pohl or to the memory of Sir Arthur, but this whole book feels rather second-rate. And after the build-up of hype while it was still being worked on, it doesn't fulfil its initial promise. From what I understand, Sir Arthur had developed somewhere between 50 and 100 pages of notes on characters, plot lines and dialogue which he gave to Fred Pohl, and Fred Pohl then wrote the story, based on Clark's ideas. I have to say that it was not terribly successful. Those Clark fans waiting for the Master's touch will not find much of it here. Paul has done his best, but I don't think he was really given enough to work with. Although the character of Ranjit, his relationships with his father, his friends, and later on his wife and close family are quite well fleshed out, a lot of the other key characters in the book are mere ciphers, there to deliver some exposition or move the plot along a bit, and then they are gone. The background, intentions and character of the Grand Galactics is barely touched on, which is a sad omission for those Clark devotees used to his wonderful way of working with huge ideas and situations. The whole subplot of the alien enforcers being sent to sterilise the Earth comes across as almost comic, and there are way too many loose ends, strands of plot that are not tied up in any satisfactory way. And where there has to be some exposition in order to explain some complicated bit of plot or background... It is barely disguised or hidden, not even with the old and well-worn mechanism of So, tell me, Professor. And the book is way too short, including the multiple introductory sections and appendices, which are called preambles and postambles here. The book only contains 300 pages, and part of the reason for that is the lack of development of the various themes in the story. Something else may also be a bit jarring for existing Clark fans. The Solar Sailor race in The Last Theorem is taken almost entirely, and in some paragraphs practically word for word, from a short story about a solar sailing race in one of Clark's short story collections. It isn't really new material. Some sentences are lifted wholesale from the earlier work. When I had finished reading this book, which only took an afternoon and part of an evening, I just sat there for a while, wondering, thinking, Is that it? The Last Theorem is, of course, going to sell well, as every Clark fan, myself included, will want it for their collections. But it is terribly sad that the great man's final published work is not a great book, and, in my own very disappointed opinion, not even a very good book. I will always remember Arthur C. Clarke for his great earlier works, such as Childhood's End, The City and the Stars, The Songs of Distant Earth, Rendezvous with Rama, of course, 2001, A Space Odyssey, A Fall of Moon Dust, some of his outstanding short stories, and some of his other collaborations, such as Cradle, which he wrote with Gentry Lee. But this one, well, I have to be brutally honest and say that, even as a lifelong Arthur C. Clarke fan, I can't give this more than 5 out of 10 on the Beardy Review scale. And that makes me more sad than you can possibly imagine.
Why, Sean, thank you so much, sir. Do keep them coming. Really appreciate it. I think what better way now to start off this 2009 is with a little bit of science news from our ever-dependable Mr. J.J. Campanella. Jim, what's happening, sir? What's happening out there? Greetings and holiday solicitations, one and all, no matter what you happen to be celebrating and where. Welcome to this December 2008 Science News Update. This is your host, Jim Campanella. One of my comments from last month's update actually suggested the topic for this month. I made an offhand reference to genetically modified foods being safe, and I kind of dropped the topic right there because it was basically not relevant. I also dropped the topic because I did not want to hear from a large number of Green Party members and environmental radicals who believe that the day of the Triffids will soon be upon us because we have meddled too much with nature and we have no concept of the forces that we have unleashed. For those of you who are too young to remember the mediocre movie or too literate to know that there was originally a pretty decent book, let me fill you in. The Day of the Triffids was a post-apocalyptic novel written in 1951 by the English science fiction author John Wyndham. In the book, Triffids are plants which have animal-like characteristics. They feed on rotting meat, are able to uproot themselves and move around, possess a deadly poisonous sting, and appear to communicate with each other. The narrator of the book is Bill Mason, who made his living working with Triffids before all hell broke loose. Being an expert on the subject, Bill speculates that the plants were deliberately bioengineered in the Soviet Union and that Triffid seeds were spread worldwide when an attempt was made to smuggle them out of Russia. Essentially, after a strange meteor shower leaves most of the people of the world blind, the Triffids run amok and take over the world. Um, okay, for you youngsters out there, the story plays out a lot like 28 Days Later, the movie, with man-eating plants instead of fast zombies. And yes, please, I know they're not zombies. Anyway, what's my point? Well, perhaps I'm being a little sensitive, but every time I have conversed with someone who is anti-GMO, genetically modified organisms... They make me and my scientist brethren out to be like those Soviets who made the Triffids. Come on, you got to give me a break here. Let me reassure you, we have no plans of taking over the world via vegetable or animal matter of any kind. Every serious plant biologist that I've ever met has a single goal, to grow healthier, happier fruits and vegetables and grains that are good for you. And much as you may want to accuse Monsanto or whomever of pirating that goal for their own benefits, even Monsanto has to answer to the world eventually if they actually did produce foods that hurt people. And believe it or not, they do realize that. So let me try to bring everybody up to date on the risks and potential problems that GMOs actually represent. I absolutely agree that there are risks, but let me assure you that genetically engineered foods are probably the most highly tested and examined foods in the history of mankind. No one out there wants to be responsible for hurting an innocent schlub if they can possibly help it. So the risks as I see it fall into two major categories. First, and you can call this the triffid question, will the plants themselves hurt the environment or anything in the environment? That's certainly a valid worry and one that is being ceaselessly examined, as we will discuss. The second risk... You can call that the fruit-of-the-vine question. 
That means, okay, even if the GM plants are not harmful to the environment, is the food harmful to people? In other words, is a GMO tomato as safe as an unmodified tomato? No, we're not talking taste here. That is something else entirely. We're talking health risks. Again, this is a valid question. If you have an altered tomato that makes a substance toxic to insects in its leaves, is the fruit any more dangerous for you than it was before? First, let's look at the terrific questions. Is there any evidence that GMOs harm the environment? Several evils have been suggested about GMOs. Let's start with a simple one. In the process of genetically engineering a plant, scientists obviously need to transfer different genes into the plant's genomes. One of the most important things that are transferred to the modified plants are antibiotic resistance genes. These are needed to help tell them apart from the plants which have not picked up the gene that they're interested in. Unfortunately, the antibiotic resistance genes stay in the plants. One problem that has been suggested is that GMO plants are able to transfer these antibiotic resistance genes not only to other plants, but even into bacteria and into the general environment. Is this true? Is this false? Well, unfortunately, as with a lot of ecological questions, this is not an easy one to answer. Resistance genes are not always needed in the process of plant modification. If you put herbicide resistance into your target plant, for example, then the trait selection will be obvious and you won't even need to use antibiotic resistance. Unfortunately, if you're transferring in a more subtle trait, such as insect resistance, you'll end up being dependent on antibiotic resistance as a marker. Two of the resistance genes that are used regularly are against the antibiotics ampicillin and neomycin. Ampicillin is used medically as treatment for upper respiratory infections, urinary tract infections, and some STDs. Neomycin is toxic even to humans if taken incorrectly and is used mostly for external infections like swimmer's ear or conjunctivitis. There are four theoretical worries about the use of all these antibiotic resistance genes as I have described. First, is the gene itself harmful to animals or humans? That is, is the DNA of the gene dangerous? And this is a pretty easy one to answer. No. DNA is DNA. It doesn't matter whether the DNA is from a giraffe or a polio virus or a bread mold. We share millions of years of evolutionary history that has made our DNA alike. Forty years of extensive molecular studies have shown that just introduction of foreign DNA into another organism is pretty harmless. Of course, this brings up worry number two. Okay, so the DNA is harmless, but is the protein product of the antibiotic resistance gene harmless to humans and animals? Studies by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration have shown that these proteins do appear mostly harmless. The antibiotic resistance proteins have no toxic effects on humans or animals and are treated just as any other dietary protein and degraded away. In fact, it's been shown that humans and animals have always been exposed to resistance genes in the environment. Naturally resistant bacteria have been making these things in our guts for millions of years. So we're actually used to them by now. So worry number three is a serious one. Can these resistance genes escape into the environment and get transferred into bacteria? What we don't need is more bacteria that have antibiotic resistance genes in them. Unfortunately, several research groups have demonstrated that this transfer is possible in the laboratory. 
1998, several independent research groups demonstrated that the Acinetobacter bacteria has the ability to take up foreign DNA when exposed to a genetically modified plant in soil. However, studies in the field have shown that it may not be so simple. A seven-year study concluded in 2001 suggested that GMO crops have no effect on E. coli and other bacteria in the nearby growing fields, and that they were no more resistant than when they started the study. And again, a study in 2004 showed no increase in ampicillin resistance in bacteria on fields planted with GMO corn. So it appears that DNA transfer may happen in the lab, but not necessarily in real life out on the farm. Okay, finally... Worry number four, and again, this is a serious one. Can these resistance genes end up inserting themselves into human cells and causing deleterious effects? 1997 studies suggest probably not. When large doses of purified bacterial DNA were given orally to rats, fragments of that DNA could be detected in various body cells. However, almost all the cells were in the immune system, and the immune system scavenges and kills invaders like the bacteria and there didn't seem to be any full-length expressing genes that were ever found. Uh, the researchers also found DNA transfer into the cells of the gut. And this seems to be a worry, too, until you realize that the cells in your intestines are about as temporary as they come. Those cells are normally shed and lost at such a high rate that it's unlikely that they could be particularly harmful. Well, at least that was the conclusion of the American Society of Toxicology in 2002. Given all these worries, plant geneticists have decided to take the high road and simply find a new way of doing the transformation work, a way that does not involve the use of antibiotic resistance genes. It makes sense. The best way of dealing with the issue is simply getting rid of the possibility of danger by removing the marker genes from the equation. One way of doing it is to immediately remove the selection genes after selection has taken place and when they're no longer needed. This makes sense. If the resistance genes are gone, one major worry about GMO crops goes along with them. Unfortunately, removal of the genes is costly in terms of time and money, and the methodology is still being perfected. But the understanding of the problem is out there, and we are trying to fix it. So the second Triffid question concerns the killing of cute butterflies, bees, and other useful insects. We know that insecticides, when sprayed on the fields kill both the good and the bad insects. But generally the good insects are not eating the crops, so they're not killed by the insecticides most of the time. It's no different for GMO foods. If your cotton boll weevil eats the insecticide-transformed cotton, he will die. If a bee or a butterfly tries to eat the cotton, they'll die also. Use of insecticides has always been dependent on the useful insect not eating the crop. The upshot is, though, that there is no greater chance of the good insects dying from eating a GM plant than an insecticide-sprayed non-GM plant. The difference to the consumer is the level of insecticide that is there. You are dealing with a much lower effective concentration in the transformed crop than in the sprayed crops, so it's certainly safer for humans, if not the insects. This is one of the big selling points of GM crops to environmentalists, or at least it should be one of the big selling points. And again, taking the high road, although they don't have to, geneticists have actually started using what are called tissue-specific promoters to get the insecticized genes expressed only in the plant tissues, in the leaves and the stems, that are going to be eaten by the nasty predators. 
If those genes are not expressed in the flower, for example, bees and butterflies have a much lower chance of ever being killed by them. So the last Triffid question concerns what some have called transgene escape. Although it sounds like the title of a new Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, what it means is specifically the movement of new genes that you've placed into your GMO crop into some wild plant, usually a wild relative of some kind of crop plant. This final Triffid problem is a serious one, and all plant geneticists pretty much agree with that assessment. There's a broad recognition that transgene escape happens and that it needs to be minimized. Going back to 2003, Canadian researcher Suzanne Warwick demonstrated that herbicide resistance genes were able to transfer from canola plants, Brassica nepis, into the neighboring weeds in the field which were in the same genus, Brassica rapa. Presumably, they cross-pollinated because they were related at some level. Plants do this regularly. In 2008, Warwick again repeated her study of the same field and found that those same herbicide resistance genes persisted in the weed population even after five years in the wild. These transgenes have the potential to increase crop yield, improve crop nutrition, reduce the use of pesticides, and lower fuel costs of farmers. And they've done exactly this since they started being introduced almost 20 years ago. One of the best examples of just how much good GMO crops do is that GM canola crops have used almost 25% less pesticides and increased yield by 10% over the last 10 years. However, if we're going to have these genes moving into wild populations where we don't want them, we're going to face some problems. The most obvious is that the transformed weeds will become themselves resistant to the herbicides, and worse, that the genes will persist in the environment for years to come. Usually there's a barrier between species that prevents the type of hybrids that Warwick observed, and the resultant offsprings are usually infertile. But among many species, you end up with offspring that are low in fertility, but still fertile. Unfortunately, there's mounting evidence that the kind of hybrids that Suzanne Warwick found are the rule rather than the exception, and that as long as related weeds are present, there will be this problem. And so far, there are no solutions. To make matters worse, mathematical models have suggested that any improved methods of growing GM crops to isolate them will only slow the escape process and not get rid of it entirely. The only way to get any commercially viable open field containment system to work is to ensure that the GM crops are harvested before they can pass along their genes. And that's not always possible. So far, transgene escape has not been a practical problem in the wild especially for plants that mostly do not have weedy relatives, like corn. But the big worry is that it'll get worse as time passes, and frankly, there's no solution right now to this problem. It sounds like a cop-out here, but right now there's nothing to do about this except to wait and hope that someone out there is clever enough to suggest a solution to this in the future. Okay, let's finish this thing up by looking at the last question, what I earlier called the fruit of the vine question. Is there any evidence that GM plants are dangerous or toxic to humans or animals? The short answer is no. Studies suggest that there is little evidence of toxicity among commercially available GM crops and few health risks. Studies have been performed extensively in potatoes, corn, soybeans, cucumbers, tomatoes, peppers, peas, canola, and rice for more than 10 years. 
In 2001, Dr. Zinan Dezunchik's study concluded that it was not enough to just compare the chemical composition of GM foods against untransformed foods. He insisted that long-term in vivo studies were a requirement for consumer safety, which was good because this was already pretty much an accepted practice. But it's always nice to hear that uh, you're doing the right thing. In 2003, Dr. A.J. Bakshi's study suggested evidence that scientists and the GMO industry were doing a pretty good job and that GM crops seemed to be generally safe for consumption with no associated health problems. That was also nice to hear, even though he pointed out the caveat that since the technology was so new, we had not been able to study the crops for long enough to be absolutely certain. Also in 2003, doctors Ian Prime and Rolf Lemke did an extensive review of the published literature on a long-term safety of GM foods and animal feeds made from those foodstuffs. They concluded exactly the same thing as Bakshi. The food seemed safe at the time, but they suggested just to keep testing and keeping an eye on it, because you just never know. The most recent review examining the safety issues was published this year in 2008 by Dr. Jose Domingo, This study concludes something a little different. He points out that there is still little evidence for GM foods to be dangerous, but at the same time he has a major conniption fit over the fact that most in vivo studies done in this area are surprisingly incomplete. Quote, The number of references we found reviewing GM food safety were surprisingly limited. Most studies we find were incomplete and not performed over a reasonable period of testing time. Moreover, most published studies were not performed by the biotechnology companies that produce these products. Where is the hard scientific evidence showing that GM plants slash food are toxicologically safe? Unquote. Domingo is a bit overwrought, but he does make a good point. His main concern is that there is very limited long-term toxicological information on GM foods. He does not feel that we are being dealt with fairly. I suspect that Domingo is mostly right, but I think he really is underestimating the responsibility that scientists feel about GM foods, as well as the GMO industry in general. Although there is the public conception that these giant biotech companies are making poisonous foodstuffs that they're testing in the developing world and then shipping off to the developed countries once they are shown to be safe, it's simply silly to believe that. No company, unless they have a corporate death wish, purposely implements policies like that, outside of a bad James Bond movie or a novel by Michael Crichton. There was a story that was told to me at a conference several years back about Pioneer Hybrid International Seed Company in the U.S., That's one of the biggest seed producers in the world. And yes, they're a subsidiary of DuPont Corporation. They spent millions of dollars developing a way of isolating the oils from Brazil nuts and transferring that capacity into corn. The reason for this is that Brazil nut oil is highly nutritious and has been shown to reduce cholesterol levels in humans. Most people do not eat Brazil nuts, but they do eat corn and corn foodstuffs so it was a way of increasing the nutrient content of corn. Despite spending all that money, Pioneer conscientiously shut down the project after some simple allergen testing was done. It was found that the same molecular structures that cause severe peanut allergies in humans were in the Brazil nut oils as well, 
In short, the GM corn with the Brazil nut oil would be fine for anybody except someone with a peanut allergy who would go into severe allergic shock and possibly die. Despite all the investment, Pioneer knew that they would be idiots to continue the project. There was no way that they would ever be able to ensure farmers not mixing up one corn crop with another and sending off a fatal batch of GM corn to be made into killer Doritos for part of the population. They dropped the project like a hot potato. What's my point? Only this. The GMO industry is much more responsible than they are usually made out to be. Are they saints, with love in their hearts for all of humankind? No. The bottom line will always be profit for them. But, at the same time, they are not the evil devils that many environmentalists would make them out to be. As the Buddhists say, the truth lies neither here nor there, but somewhere in between. In conclusion, whether you realize it or not, humans have been engineering plants for thousands of years. Neither corn nor wheat would look like they do now if we had not stepped in to breed, rebreed, and alter those plants thousands of years ago. We have been, quote, messing with nature, unquote, for a very long time. But things have changed because now when we mess with nature, we do it very quickly and we're able to change plants very specifically. GM plants are safer than those hybrids bred together so randomly as to throw thousands of genes together and just hoping for the best. And scary as it is, we must all face what is coming. In the next 50 years, the Earth's population will possibly hit 20 billion people. We have to feed all those new mouths, and we simply will not be able to do it by organic farming, no matter how sincere your pumpkin patch is. There's not enough manure and not enough natural fertilizer on the face of the earth to do that. We have to look to other means to save us from starvation. And I may be preaching to the choir here, but I think that science will be our only hope. GM foods can only get safer and better for you but we must be patient until geneticists get a serious handle on the process. We have only been engineering plants now for about 20 years. We will get much better at this as time goes by. And as we get better at it, everyone will benefit. Thanks for listening, and again, have a wonderful and happy holiday season. As always, take care, and I hope I have inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella. Fantastic. Jim, sir, you're a star. Thank you so much. Do pop over to Jim's site. Link's on the front of the website. Say hello and tell him you appreciate all his hard work. So we start this new little section in Oral Delights. We're doing a serial, and today's is Mr. David Brin's Temptation. I'll give you a little heads up on David Brin. Born in Glendale, California in 1950. In 1973, he graduated from California Institute of Technology with a Bachelor of Science in Astronomy. He followed this with a Master's of Science in Applied Physics in 1978 and a Doctor of Philosophy in Space Science in 1981. Ho ho! Packing some cleverness there, I'll tell you. Currently lives in California. David Brin mentions that this actual story follows the adventures of characters in the second Uplift trilogy, Brightness Ref, Infinity Shore and Heaven's Reach, 
And in David's own words, he said it will slide into a novel that will be finished as soon as he publishes lavish near-future novel Existence. So look forward to that. Do pop over to David Brin's site, davidbrin.com, and check out David Country Brin, which is at davidbrin.blogspot.com. Both those links to those two sites will be on the main page. Narration today comes from our good friend, Julie Davis. Julie over there at Forgotten Classics. Do pop over to say hello to Julie. We will have next week, we will have the second part of this serial, again narrated by Julie. So, without further ado, the Starship Sova and Oral Delight is very proud to have Temptation Part 1 by David Brin. Temptation by David Brin Copyright 1998 by David Brin All rights reserved. No duplication or resale without permission. Part 1 Macanee Jijo's ocean stroked her flank like a mother's nuzzling touch or a lover's caress. Though it seemed a bit disloyal, Makany felt this alien ocean had a silkier texture and finer taste than the waters of Earth, the homeworld she had not seen in years. With gentle beats of their powerful flukes, she and her companion kept easy pace beside a tremendous throng of fish-like creatures, red-finned, with violet gills and long, translucent tails that glittered in the slanted sunlight like plasma sparks behind a starship. The creatures were beautiful and delicious. Magony performed an agile twist of her sleek gray body, lunging to snatch one from the teeming mass, provoking only a slight ripple from its nearest neighbors. Her casual style of predation must be new to Jijo, for the beasts seemed quite oblivious toward the dolphins. The rubbery flesh tasted like exotic mackerel. I can't help feeling guilty. She commented in underwater Anglic, a language of clicks and squeals that was well-suited to a liquid realm where sound ruled over light. Her companion rolled alongside the school, belly up, with ventral fins waving languidly as he grabbed one of the local fish for himself. "'Why guilty?' Brigitte asked, while the victim writhed between his narrow jaws. Its soft struggle did not interfere with his train of word glyphs, since a dolphin's mouth plays no role in generating sound. Instead, a rapid series of ratcheting sonar impulses emanated from his brow. Are you ashamed because you live? Because it feels good to be outside again, with a warm sea rubbing your skin and the crash of waves singing in your dreams? Do you miss the stale water and moldy air aboard ship? Or the dead echoes of your cramped stateroom? Don't be absurd, she snapped back. After three years confined aboard the Terran survey vessel's streaker, McInnie had felt as cramped as an overdue fetus straining at the womb. Release from that purgatory was like being born anew. It's just that we're enjoying a tropical paradise while our crewmates must continue tearing across the cosmos in foul discomfort chased by vile enemies facing death at every turn. Yes, I know. Brokita let out an expressive sigh. The elderly geophysicist switched languages. 
to one more suited for poignant irony. Winter's tempest spends all its force against the reef, sparing the lagoon. The trinary haiku was expressive and wry. At the same time, though, Macanee could not help making a physician's diagnosis. She found her old friend's sonic patterns rife with undertones of primal. The natural cetacean demi-language used by wild Tersiops truncatus dolphins back on Earth, a dialect that members of the modern amicus breed were supposed to avoid, lest their minds succumb to tempting ancient ways, mental styles that lured with rhythms of animal-like purity. She found it worrisome to hear primal from Brachita, one of her few companions with an intact psyche. Most of the other dolphins on Jijo suffered to some degree from stress atavism, having lost the cognitive focus needed by engineers and starfarers. They could no longer help Streaker in its desperate flight across five galaxies. Planting the small colony on Jijo had seemed a logical solution, leaving the regressed ones for Macanee to care for in this gentle place, while their shipmates sped on to new crises elsewhere. She could hear them now, browsing along the same fishy swarm just a hundred meters off. Thirty neo-dolphins who had once graduated from prestigious universities, specialists chosen for an elite expedition, now reduced to splashing and squalling, with little on their minds but food, sex, and music. Their primitive calls no longer embarrassed Macanee. After everything her colleagues had gone through since departing Terra, on a routine one-year survey voyage that instead stretched into a hellish three, it was surprising they had any sanity left at all. Such suffering would wear down a human, or even a Timbrimi. But our race is just a few centuries old. Neo-dolphins have barely started the long road of uplift. Our grip on sapience is still slippery. And now, another trail beckons us. After debarking with her patients, Macanee had learned about the local religion of the six races, who already secretly settled this isolated world, a creed centered on the path of redemption, a belief that salvation could be found in blissful ignorance and non-sapience. It was harder than it sounded. Among the sooner races who had come to this world illegally, seeking refuge in simplicity, only one had succeeded so far, and Macanee doubted that the human settlers would ever reclaim true animal innocence, no matter how hard they tried. Unlike species who were uplifted, humans had earned their intelligence the hard way on old Earth, seizing each new talent or insight at frightful cost over the course of a thousand harsh millennia. They might become ignorant and primitive, but never simple, never innocent. We neo-dolphins will find it easy, however. We've only been tool users for such a short time, a boon from our human patrons that we never sought. It's simple to give up something you received without struggle, especially when the alternative, the whale dream, calls seductively each time you sleep. An alluring sanctuary, the sweet trap of timelessness. From clackety sonar emanations, she sends to her assistants, a pair of fully conscious volunteers, keeping herd on the reverted ones, making sure the group stayed together. 
Things seemed pleasant here, but no one knew for sure what dangers lurked in Jijo's wide sea. We already have three wanderers out there somewhere. Poor little Pipo and her two wretched kidnappers. I promised Ka we'd send out search parties to rescue her. But how? Zaki and Mopol have a huge head start and half a planet to hide in. Tikat's out there looking for her right now, and we'll start expanding the search as soon as the patients are settled and safe. But they could be on the other side of Jijo by now. Our only real hope is for Pipo to escape that pair of dolts somehow and get close enough to call for help. It was time for Makany and Brikita to head back and take their own turn shepherding the happy, innocent patients. Yet she felt reluctant, nervous. Something in the water rolled through her mouth with a faint metallic tang, tasting like expectancy. Makany swung her sound sensitive jaw around, seeking clues. At last she found a distant tremor, a faintly familiar resonance coming from the west. Brigitte hadn't noticed yet. Well, he commented, it won't be long until we are truly part of this world, I suppose. A few generations from now, none of our descendants will be using Anglic or any galactic language. We'll be guileless innocents once more, ripe for readoption, and a second chance at uplift. I wonder what our new patrons will be like. Makany's friend was goading her gently with the bittersweet destiny anticipated for this colony on a world that seemed made for cetaceans, a world whose comfort was the surest way to clinch a rapid devolution of their disciplined minds. Without constant challenges, the whale dream would surely reclaim them. Brikita seemed to accept the notion with an ease that disturbed Makany. We still have patrons, she pointed out. There are humans living right here on Jijo. Humans, yes, but uneducated, lacking the scientific skills to continue guiding us. So our only remaining option must be. He stopped, having at last picked up that rising sound from the west. Makany recognized the unique hum of a speed sled. It is to Ket, she said, returning from his scouting trip. Let's go hear what he found out. Thrashing her flukes, Makany jetted to the surface, spuming the moist, stale air from her lungs and drawing in a deep breath of sweet oxygen. Then she spun about and kicked off toward the engine noise, with Brokita following close behind. In their wake, the school of grazing fishoids barely rippled in its endless, sinuous dance. Darting in and out of luminous shoals, feeding on whatever the good sea pressed toward them. The archaeologist had his own form of mental illness, wishful thinking. Tiquette had been ordered to stay behind and help Makany with the reverted ones, partly because his skills weren't needed in Streaker's continuing desperate flight across the known universe. In compensation for that bitter exile, he had grown obsessed with studying the Great Midden. That deep underwater trash heap where Jijo's ancient occupants had dumped nearly every sapient made object when this planet was abandoned by star fearing culture half a million years ago. I'll have a wonderful report to submit when we get back to Earth, 
he rationalized, in apparent confidence that all their troubles would pass, and eventually he would make it home to publish his results. It was a special kind of derangement, without featuring any sign of stress, atavism, or reversion. Tiquette still spoke Anglic perfectly. His work was flawless and his demeanor cheerful. He was pleasant, functional, and mad as a hatter. Mackinney met the sled a kilometer west of the pod, where Tiquette pulled up short in order not to disturb the patients. Did you find any traces of Peepo? she asked when he cut the engine. Tiquette was a wonderfully handsome specimen of Terciops animacus, with speckled mottling along his sleek gray flanks. The permanent dolphin smile presented twin rows of perfectly white conical teeth. While still nestled on the sled's control platform, Tiquette shook his sleek gray head left and right. Alas, no. I went about two hundred clicks following those faint traces we picked up on deep range sonar. But it grew clear that the source wasn't Zaki's sled. Mackinney grunted disappointment. Hm. Then what was it? Unlike the clamorous sea of Earth, this fallow planet wasn't supposed to have motor noises permeating its thermal acoustic layers. At first, I started imagining all sorts of unlikely things, like sea monsters or Jofer submarines, Tiquette answered. Then the truth hit me. Brikita nodded nervously, venting bubbles from his blowhole. Yes? It must be a starship. An ancient piece of trash wreck, barely puttering along. Of course! Mackinney thrashed her tail. Some of the decoys didn't make it into space. Tiquette murmured ruefully over how obvious it now seemed. When Streaker made its getaway attempt, abandoning Mackinney and her charges on this world, the Earth ship fled concealed in a swarm of ancient relics that dolphin engineers had resurrected from trash heaps on the ocean floor. Though Jijo's surface now was a fallow realm of savage tribes, the deep underwater canyons still held thousands of battered, abandoned spacecraft and other debris from when this section of Galaxy Four had been a center of civilization and commerce. Several dozen of those derelicts had been reactivated in order to confuse Straker's foe, a fearsome Jaffer battleship. But some of the hulks must have failed to haul their bulk out of the sea when the time came. Those failures were doomed to drift aimlessly underwater until their engines gave out, and they tumbled once more to the murky depths. As for the rest, there had been no word whether Streaker's ploy succeeded beyond luring the awful dreadnought away toward deep space. At least Jijo seemed a friendlier place without it. For now. We should have expected this, the archaeologist continued. When I got away from the shoreline surf noise, I thought I could detect at least three of the hulks bumping around out there almost randomly. It seems kind of sad when you think about it. Ancient ships not worth salvaging when the Boyar abandoned Jijo, waiting in an icy, watery tomb for just one last chance to climb back out to space. Only these couldn't make it. They're stranded here. Like us, Mackinney murmured. Tiquette seemed not to hear. In fact, I'd like to go back out there and try to catch up with one of the derelicts. Whatever for. Tiquette's smile was still charming and infectious. 
which made it seem even crazier under these circumstances. I'd like to use it as a scientific instrument, the big neo-dolphin said. McEnany felt utterly confirmed in her diagnosis. Peepo. Captivity wasn't as bad as she had feared. It was worse. Among natural, pre-sapient dolphins on Earth, small groups of young males would sometimes conspire to isolate a fertile female away from the rest of the pod, herding her away for private copulation, especially if she was about to enter heat. By working together, they might monopolize her matings and guarantee their own reproductive success, even if she clearly preferred a local, alpha-ranked male instead. That ancient behavior persisted in the wild because, while native Terciops had both traditions and a kind of feral honor, they could not quite grasp or carry out the concept of law, a code that all must live by, because the entire community has a memory transcending any individual. But modern, uplifted amicus dolphins did have law, and when young hoodlums occasionally let instinct prevail and tried that sort of thing back home, the word for it was rape. Punishment was harsh. As with human sexual predators, just one of the likely outcomes was permanent sterilization. Such penalties worked. After three centuries, some of the less desirable primal behaviors were becoming rare. Yet, uplifted neo-dolphins were still a young race. Great stress could yank old ways back to the fore, from time to time. And we streakers have sure been under stress. Unlike some devolved crewmates, whose grip on modernity and rational thought had snapped under relentless pressure, Zaki and Mopol suffered only partial atavism. They could still talk and run complex equipment, but they were no longer the polite, almost shy junior ratings she had met when Streaker first set out from Earth under Captain Kradiki before the whole cosmos seemed to implode all around the dolphin crew. In abstract, she understood the terrible strain that had put them in this state. Perhaps, if she were offered a chance to kill Zaki and Mopol, Pipo might call that punishment a bit too severe. On the other fin, sterilization was much too good for them. Despite sharing the same culture and a common ancestry as earth mammals, dolphins and humans looked at many things differently. Pipo felt more annoyed at being kidnapped than violated, more pissed off than traumatized. She wasn't able to stymie their lust completely, but with various tricks— Playing on their mutual jealousy and feigning illness as often as she could, Pipo staved off unwelcome attentions for long stretches. But if I find out they murdered Ka, I'll have their entrails for lunch. Days passed, and her impatience grew. Pipo's real time limit was fast approaching. My contraception implant will expire. Zaki and his pal have fantasies about populating Jijo with their descendants, but I like this planet far too much to curse it that way. She vowed to make a break for it. But how? Sometimes she would swim to a channel between the two remote islands where her kidnappers had brought her and drift languidly, listening. Once, Pipo thought she made out something faintly familiar, a clicking murmur, 
like a distant crowd of dolphins. But it passed, and she dismissed it as wishful thinking. Zakia Mopol had driven the sled at top speed for days on end with her strapped to the back before they halted by this strange archipelago and removed her sonar-proof blindfold. She had no idea how to find her way back to the old coastline where Makany's group had settled. When I do escape these two idiots, I may be consigning myself to a solitary existence for the rest of my days. Oh, well, you wanted the life of an explorer. There could be worse fates than swimming all the way around this beautiful world, eating exotic fish when you're hungry, riding strange tides and listening to rhythms no dolphin ever heard before. The fantasy had a poignant beauty, though ultimately it made her lonely and sad. The ocean echoed with anger, engines, and strange noise. Of course, it was all a matter of perspective. On noisy earth, this would have seemed eerily quiet. Terran seas buzzed with a cacophony of traffic, much of it caused by her own kind as neo-dolphins gradually took over managing 70% of the home planet's surface. In mining the depths, or tending the fisheries, or caring for those sacredly complex simpletons called whales, more and more responsibilities fell to uplifted fins, using boats, subs, and other equipment. Despite continuing efforts to reduce the racket, home was still a raucous place. In comparison, Jijo appeared as silent as a nursery. Natural sound-carrying thermal layers reported waves crashing on distant shorelines and intermittent groaning as minor quakes rattled the ocean floor. A myriad buzzes, clicks, and whistles came from Jijo's own subsurface fauna, fishy creatures that evolved here or were introduced by colonizing leaseholders like the Boyar long ago. Some distant rumbles even hinted at large entities moving slowly, languidly across the deep, perhaps pondering long, slow thoughts. As days stretched to weeks, Pipo learned to distinguish Jijo's organic rhythms, punctuated by a grating din whenever one of the boys took the sled for a joyride, stampeding schools of fish or careening along with the load indicator showing red. At this rate, the machine wouldn't stand up much longer, though Pipo kept hoping one of them would break his full neck first. With or without the sled, Zaki and Mopol could track her down if she just swam away. Even when they left piles of dead fish to ferment atop some floating reeds and got drunk on the foul carcasses, the two never let their guard down long enough to let her steal the sled. It seemed that one or the other was always sprawled across the saddle. Since dolphins sleep only one brain hemisphere at a time, it was impossible to take them completely by surprise. Then... After two months of captivity, she detected signs of something drawing near. Pipo had been diving in deeper water for a tasty kind of local soft-shell crab when she first heard it. Her two captors were having fun a kilometer away, driving their speedster in tightening circles around a panicked school of bright silvery fishoids. But when she dived through a thermal boundary layer, separating warm water above from cool, saltier liquid below, the sled's racket abruptly diminished. Blessed silence was one added benefit of this culinary exploit. Pipo had been doing a lot of diving lately. 
This time, however, the transition did more than spare her the sled's noise for a brief time. It also brought forth a new sound, a distant rumble, channeled by the chilly stratum. With growing excitement, people recognized the murmur of an engine, yet the rhythm struck her as unlike anything she had heard on earth or anywhere else. Puzzled, she kicked swiftly to the surface, filled her lungs with fresh air, and dived back down to listen again. This deep current offers an excellent sonic groove, she realized, focusing sound rather than diffusing it, keeping the vibrations well confined. Even the sled sensors may not pick it up for quite a while. Unfortunately, that also meant she couldn't tell how far away the source was. If I had a breather unit, if it weren't necessary to keep surfacing for air, I could swim a great distance masked by this thermal barrier. Otherwise, it seems hopeless. They can use the sled's monitors on long range scan to detect me when I broach and exhale. Peepo listened for a while longer and decided. I think it's getting closer, but slowly. The source must still be far away. If I make a dash now, I won't get far before they catch me. And yet, she daren't risk Mopal and Zaki picking up the new sound. If she must wait, it meant keeping them distracted till the time was right. There was just one way to accomplish that. Pupo grimaced. Rising toward the surface, she expressed disgust with a vulgar trinary demi haiku. May the sun roast your backs and hard sand scrape your bottoms till you itch madly, as if with a good case of the clap. Macony. She sent a command over her neural link, ordering the tools of her harness to fold away into streamlined recesses, signaling that the inspection visit was over. The chief of the Kikwi, A little male with purple gill fringes surrounding a squat head let himself drift a meter or so under the water's surface, spreading all four webbed hands in a gesture of benediction and thanks. Then he thrashed around to lead his folk away toward the nearby island where they made their home. Macony felt satisfaction as she watched the small formation of kicking amphibians clutching their stone tipped spears. Who would have thought that we dolphins? youngest registered sapient race in the civilization of five galaxies would become patrons ourselves, just a few centuries after humans started uplifting us. The Kikwi were doing pretty well on Jijo, all considered. Soon after being released onto a coral atoll not far offshore, they started having babies. Under normal conditions, some elder race would find an excuse to take the Kikwi away from dolphins. Fostering such a promising pre sapient species into one of the rich ancient family lines that ruled oxygen breathing civilization in the five galaxies. But here on Jijo, things were different. They were cut off from starfaring culture, a vast, bewildering society of complex rituals and obligations that made the ancient Chinese imperial court seem like a toddler sandbox by comparison. There were advantages and disadvantages to it being a castaway from all that. On the one hand, 
Makani would no longer have to endure the constant tension of running away from huge oppressive battle fleets or aliens whose grudges went beyond earthling comprehension. On the other hand, there would be no more performances of symphony or opera or bubble dance for her to attend. Never again must she endure disparaging sneers from exalted patron-level beings who considered dolphins little more than bright beasts. Nor would she spend another lazy Sunday in her snug apartment in cosmopolitan Melbourne under, with multicolored fish cruising the coral garden just outside her window while she munched salmon patties and watched an all-dolphin cast perform Twelfth Night on the telly. Macanee was marooned, and would likely remain so for the rest of her life, caring for two small groups of sea-based colonists, hoping they would remain hidden from trouble until a new era came, an age when both might resume the path of uplift. Assuming some metal nutrient supplements could be arranged, the Kikwi had apparently transplanted well. Of course, they must be taught tribal taboos against overhunting any one species of local fauna, so their presence would not become a curse on this world. But the clever little amphibians already showed some understanding, expressing the concept in their own emphatic demi-speech. Rare is precious. Not eat or hurt rare, precious things, fishes, beasts. Only eat, hunt, many of a kind. She felt a personal stake in this. Two years ago, when Streaker was about to depart poisonous Kithrop, masked inside the hulk of a crashed Thananian warship, Makany had taken it upon herself to beckon a passing tribe of Kikwi with some of their own recorded calls, attracting the curious group into Streaker's main airlock just before the surrounding water boiled with exhaust from revving engines. What then seemed an act of simple pity turned into a kind of love affair as the friendly little amphibians became favorites of the crew. Perhaps now their race might flourish in a kinder place than unhappy Kithrop. It felt good to know Streaker had accomplished at least one good thing out of its poignant, tragic mission. As for dolphins, how could anyone doubt their welcome in Jijo's warm sea? Once you learned which fishoids were edible and which to avoid, life became a matter of snatching whatever you wanted to eat, then splashing and lolling about. True, she missed her holosan unit, with its booming renditions of whale chants and baroque chorales, but here she could take pleasure by listening to an ocean whose sonic purity was almost as fine as its vibrant texture. Almost. Reacting to a faint sensation, Makany swung her sound-sensitive jaw around, casting right and left. There. She heard it again. A distant rumbling that might have escaped notice amid the underwater cacophony on Earth. But here it seemed to stand out from the normal swish of current and tide. Her patience, the several dozen dolphins whose stress atavism had reduced them to infantile innocence, called such infrequent noises bujums or else they used a worried upward trill in primal delphin, one that stood for strange monsters of the deep. Sometimes the far-off grumbles did seem to hint at some huge living entity, rumbling with basso profundo pride, complacently assured that it owned the entire vast sea. Or else it might be just frustrated engine noise from some remnant derelict machine, wandering aimlessly in the ocean's immensity, 
Leaving the Kikwi Atoll behind, McInnie swam back toward the underwater dome where she and Brookita, plus a few still sapient nurses, maintained a small base to keep watch over their charges. It would be good to get out of the weather for a while. Last night she had roughed it, keeping an eye on her patients during a rain squall. An unpleasant, wearying experience. We modern neophins are spoiled. It will take us years to get used to living in the elements, accepting whatever nature sends our way without complaining or making ambitious plans to change the way things are. That human side of us must be allowed to fade away. Pipo. She made her break around mid-morning the next day. Zacky was sleeping off a hangover near a big mat of driftweed, and Mopole was using the sled to harass some unlucky penguin-like seabirds who were trying to feed their young by fishing near the island's lee shore. It seemed a good chance to slip away, but Pipo's biggest reason for choosing this moment was simple. Diving deep below the thermal layer, she found that the distant rumble had peaked and appeared to have turned away, diminishing with each passing hour. It was now or never. Pipo had hoped to steal something from the sled first, a utensil harness, perhaps, or a breather tube, and not just for practical reasons. In normal life, few neo-dolphins spent a single day without using cyborg tools controlled by cable links to the brain's temporal lobes, but for months now her two would-be husbands hadn't let her connect to anything at all, the neural tap behind her left eye ached from disuse. Unfortunately, Mopole nearly always slept on the sled saddle, barely ever leaving except to eat and defecate. He'll be desolated when the speeder finally breaks down, she thought, taking some solace from that. So the decision was made and Ifni's dice were cast. She set out with all the gifts and equipment nature provided, completely naked, into an uncharted sea. For Pipo, escaping captivity began unlike any human novel or fantasholo. In such stories, the heroine's hardest task was normally the first part, sneaking away. But here, Pipo faced no walls, locked rooms, dogs, or barbed wire. Her guards let her come and go as she pleased. In this case, the problem wasn't getting started, but winning a big enough head start before Zaki and Mopol realized she was gone. Swimming under the thermocline helped her mask her movements at first. It left her vulnerable to detection only when she went up for air. But she could not keep it up for long. The Terciops genus of dolphins weren't deep divers by nature, and her speed at depth was only a third what it would be skimming near the surface. So while the island was still above the horizon behind her, Pipo started slinking along silently below and instead began her dash for freedom in earnest, racing toward the sun with an endless series of powerful back-archings and fluke-strokes, going deep only occasionally to check her bearings against the far-off droning sound. It felt exhilarating to slice through the wave-tops, flexing her body for all it was worth. Pipo remembered the last time she had raced along this way, with Ka by her side, when Jijo's waters had seemed warm, sweet, and filled with possibilities. Although she kept low-frequency sonar clickings to a minimum, she did allow herself some short-range bursts, checking ahead for obstacles and toying with the surrounding water, 
bouncing reflections off patches of sun-driven convection, letting echoes wrap themselves around her like rippling memories. Pipo's sonic transmissions remained soft and close, no louder than the vibrations given off by her kicking tail. But the patterns grew more complex as her mind settled into the rhythms of movement. Before long, returning wavelets of her own sound meshed with those of current and tide, overlapping to make phantom sonar images. Most of these were vague shapes, like the sort one felt swarming at the edges of a dream. But in time, several fell together, merging into something larger. The composite echo seemed to bend and thrust when she did, as if a spectral companion now swam nearby, where her squinting eyes saw only sunbeams in an empty sea. Ka, she thought, recognizing a certain unique zest whenever the wraith's bottlenose flicked through the waves. Among dolphins, you did not have to die in order to come back as a ghost, though it helped. Sometimes the only thing required was vividness of spirit, and Ka surely was, or had been, vivid. Or perhaps the nearby sound effigy fruited solely from Pipo's eager imagination. In fact, dolphin logic perceived no contradiction between those two explanations. Ka's essence might really be there, and not be, at the same time. Whether real or mirage, she was glad to have her lover back where he belonged, by her side. I've missed you, she thought. Anglic wasn't a good language for phantoms. No human grammar was. Perhaps that explained why the poor bipeds so seldom communed with their beloved lost. Pipo's visitor answered in a more ambiguous, innately dolphin style. Till the seaweed's flower shoots forth petals made of moonbeams, I will swim with you. Pipo was content with that. For some unmeasured time it seemed as if a real companion, her mate, swam alongside, encouraging her efforts, sharing the grueling pace, the water divided before her, caressing her flanks like a real lover. Then, abruptly, a new sound intruded, a distant grating whine that threatened to shatter all illusions. Reluctantly, she made herself clamp down, silencing the resonant chamber surrounding her blowhole. As her own sonar vibrations ceased, so did the complex echoes and her phantom comrade vanished. The waters ahead seemed to go black as Pipo concentrated, listening intently. There it was, coming from behind her, another engine vibration, this one all too familiar, approaching swiftly as it skimmed across the surface of the sea. They know, she realized. Zaki and Mopol know I'm gone, and they're coming after me. Pipo wasted no more time. She bore down with her flukes, racing through the waves faster than ever. Stealth no longer mattered. Now it was a contest of speed, endurance, and luck. Tiket. It took him most of a day and the next night to get near the source of the mysterious disturbance, pushing his power sled as fast as he dared. McEnany had ordered Tiquette not to overstrain the engine, since there would be no replacements when it wore out. "'Just be careful out there,' the elderly dolphin physician had urged, giving permission for this expedition. "'Find out what it is. 
Whether it's one of the derelict spacecraft that Swayze and the engineers brought back to life as decoys, if so, don't mess with it. Just come back and report. We'll discuss where to go from there. Tiquette did not have disobedience in mind, at least not explicitly. But if it really was a starship making the low, uneven grumbling noise, a host of possibilities presented themselves. What if it proved possible to board the machine and take over the makeshift controls that Streaker's crew had put in place? Even if it can't fly, it's cruising around the ocean. I could use it as a submersible and visit the Great Midden. That vast undersea trench was where the Boyar had dumped most of the dross of their mighty civilization when it came time for them to abandon Jicho and return its surface to fallow status. After packing up to leave, the last authorized residents of this planet used titanic machines to scrape away their cities, then sent all their buildings and other works tumbling into an abyss where the slow grinding of tectonic plates would draw the rubble inward, melting and reshaping new ores to be used by others in some future era when Jijo was opened for legal settlement once again. To an archaeologist, the midden seemed the opportunity of a lifetime. I'd learned so much about the boyar. We might examine whole classes of tools that no earthling has ever seen. The boyar were rich and powerful. They could afford the very best in the civilization of five galaxies, while we Terran newcomers can only buy the dregs. Even the stuff the boyar threw away. Their toys and broken trinkets could provide valuable data for the Terrigen's council. Tiquette wasn't a complete fool. He knew what Makany and Brookita thought of him. They consider me crazy to be optimistic about going home, to believe any of us will see Earth again, or let the industrial tang of its waters roll through our open jaws, or once more surf the riptides of Rangaroa, or give a university lecture, or dive through the richness of a worldwide data network sharing ideas with a fecund civilization at light speed. Or hold challenging conversations with others who share your intellectual passions. He had signed aboard Streaker to accompany Captain Kradiki and a Neo-Dolphin intellectual elite in the greatest mental and physical adventure any group of cetaceans ever faced—the ultimate test of their new sapient race. Only now, Kradiki was gone, presumed dead, and Tiket had been ejected by Streaker's new commander. Exiled from the ship at its worst moment of crisis, Macaney might feel complacent over being put ashore as non-essential personnel, but it churned Tiquette's guts to be spilled into a warm, disgustingly placid sea, while his crewmates were still out there facing untold dangers among the bleeding stars. A voice broke in from the outside before his thoughts could spiral any further toward self-pity. "Give me, give me, give me!" Snout-smacking pleasure of a good fight. That shrill chatter came from the sled's rear compartment, causing Tiquette's flukes to thrash in brief startlement. It was easy to forget about his quiet passenger for long stretches of time. Chasis spoke seldom, and then only in the throwback proto language, primal dolphin. Tiquette quashed his initial irritation. After all, Chasis was unwell. Like several dozen other members of the crew, her modern mind had crumbled under the pressure of Streaker's long ordeal, taking refuge in older ways of thought. 
one had to make allowances. Even though Tiquette could not imagine how it was possible for anyone to abandon the pleasures of rationality, no matter how insistently one heard the call of the whale dream. After a moment, Tiquette realized that her comment had been more than just useless chatter. Chassis must have sensed some meaning from his sonar clicks. Apparently, she understood and shared his resentment over Jillian Baskin's decision to leave them behind on Jijo. You'd rather be back in space right now, wouldn't you? he asked. Even though you can't read an instrument panel anymore? Even with Joe for battleships and other nasty snorting down streaker's neck closing in for the kill? His words were in underwater Anglic. Most of the reverted could barely comprehend it anymore. But Chassis squalled from the platform behind Tiquette, throwing a sound burst that sang like the sled's engine, thrusting ever forward, obstinately defiant. Smack the jofer! Smack the sharps! Smack them! Accompanying her eager, repetitive message squeal, there came a sonar image crafted by the fatty layers of her brow, casting a brief veil of illusion around Tiquette. He briefly visualized Chassis. Joyfully ensconced in the bubble nose of a lamprey-class torpedo, personally piloting it on a course toward a huge alien cruiser, penetrating all of the cyber-disruptive fields that galactic spacecraft used to stave off digital guidance systems, zeroing in on her target with all the instinct and native agility that dolphins inherited from their ancestors. Loss of speech apparently had not robbed some reverted ones of either spunk or ingenuity. Tiquette sputtered laughter. Jillian Baskin had made a real mistake leaving this one behind. Apparently, you did not need an engineer's mind in order to have the heart of a warrior. No wonder Mackinney let you come along on this trip, he answered. You're a bad influence on the others, aren't you? It was her turn to emit a laugh. Sounding almost exactly like his own, a ratcheting raspberry call that the masters of uplift had left alone, a deeply cetacean shout that defied the sober universe for taking so many things too seriously. Faster, faster, faster! Engines call us, offering a ride. Tiquette's tail thrashed involuntarily as her cry yanked something deep within. Without hesitating, he cranked up the sled's motor. Sending it splashing through the foamy white tops, streaking toward a mysterious object whose song filled the sea. End of part one. And there you go. Do join me next week for the second instalment of David Brin's Temptation. And these serials will be an ongoing feature now with Starships Over. If I get a nice size story. The best way to do it is break it down. You know, there are so many good works out there, and it's just a shame that we're going to limit ourselves to certain size and length, so no more will that be the case. So do come back next week. Do pop over to Dave Brin's site, say hello. Do pop over to Julie Davis's site as well. What a great narration that is. Julie, thank you so much. So that is Starships Over's Oral Delights. Again, on the brink of this new year, 2009, what will it bring? Who can tell? But hopefully it will bring to you once a week, twice a week, the Starship Sofa. Do join me next week. Until then, I would just like to see you. Good night from me.
survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Airlock will be opened in three, two, one.